Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. If you would always like to be on the show or if you would anytime want to be on the show, you could always give me a call on the listener hotline, the number 303-832-0217. That number, as well as all my contact links, are in the description of this show, including the contact link for my next guest. And because I, I um, am so curious about uh, traffic-related law questions, and I've wanted to do an interview like this for a long time, this is going to be the show. Because I get questions all the time from viewers and from listeners about legal situations that they might be caught in or just curious about when it comes to traffic, transportation, your car, anything like that. And I'm not a lawyer, but I sure know how to call one and invite him on the show. <laughs> that is exactly what I've done today. Here to answer a barrage of traffic-related law questions is the Honorable David H. Parisman, founder and lead trial attorney at New York City's Parisman Law Firm. David has dedicated over 40 years of his life to advocating for personal injury plaintiffs in New York City and Long Island. And this year, David has been named a Best Lawyers 2022 Personal Injury Litigation Plaintiffs Lawyer of the Year awardee in Long Island, New York. David, I know you're a very busy man, so thank you for taking the time to be here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Well, thank you for having me. All right, so you have a long history of helping people as a personal injury lawyer. When you look back at your life when you were a kid, what made you interested in becoming a lawyer? So many kids, they're interested in becoming a fireman or a policeman, right? Well, what made you interested in the law? Well, um, I've always been a relatively argumentative sort. Um, my mother always told me I had an answer for everything. So that certainly led me in the right direction. Um, but when I went to law school, um, I was planning on being, uh, either a tax or a business lawyer. I had no idea I was going to become a trial lawyer. And I just happened upon a, a position where I had a very, uh, interesting and very helpful mentor. And he started getting me into court and gave me the opportunity to try cases. And from the first case I tried, and some of the first cases I tried were really tiny little cases, little car accident cases that only involved damage to the vehicles, no injuries. And from the first time I started to do it, I seemed to be relatively adept at it. Um, and uh, it kept going. And... Uh, I've tried, I don't know how many cases since that time, but when you really get into it and you cross-examine witnesses and you can do summations um, and you can persuade a jury, uh, it, it's a terribly rewarding feeling um, personally. And on the other side of it is you're helping people who are injured and need to be compensated. And it's very rewarding to be able to do that for people. Um, particularly people who, who really have uh, catastrophic, serious injuries, and it, it, and it has a, a monumental effect on their life and their family. Um, it's really the kind of thing that uh, you could go home and feel good about at the end of the day. And like you said, you've been in so many cases that you can't even count them anymore. You've been in many traffic-related legal issues. Is that now, you think, your favorite area of practice? Well, the area that that I and my firm have a concentration in 
it, it represents the bulk of our cases are actually construction accident cases. But we still do handle a great deal of automobile accidents because they happen a lot. Um, you know, particularly accidents with commercial vehicles, trucks and the like. Um, and uh, sometimes the injuries can be very serious. Uh, and when those kind of cases result in serious injuries, that particular case will find its way to my office. I'm speaking with David Parisman, founder and lead trial attorney at New York City's Parisman Law Firm. We're talking about uh, what you do if you're involved in a crash. We'll get to that in just a little bit. But let's shift to what happens when somebody just gets pulled over. How, how should the driver, you think, interact with the police when somebody does get pulled over? Smile. Be polite. Answer questions. Leave your hands where they can be seen. Don't make any uh quick moves um sometimes police are very wary uh of drivers um and if it's just your basic stop for a speed or you went through a stop sign or something like that just be very polite apologize don't make excuses if there's a real reason for something, uh, you know, uh, you sneezed <laughs> and you, um, you could say that, but they generally are not interested in your um, excuses. And very often, you know, like uh, somebody who's speeding who says, um, yeah, I was I really have to get to blah, blah, blah. You just gave the police officer proof of the fact that you were speeding because you told the, the officer the reason you were speeding. So saying less is better. Be polite, answer questions and um, listen to the police. When one of these officers walks up to you, usually they start with a question. They always ask you, so where are you going? Right. Or do you know why I stopped you? Should you just not answer that question or should you say, I'm going home, or it's none of your business, or I, I you no, know, I wasn't, I wasn't speeding. You have to prove it. If they ask you where you were going, you should answer the question where you were going. That that's that that's an innocuous question. It doesn't matter. Um, and, and if to me, um, I just listen to the police. I don't ask them questions and start asking them why'd you pull me over, officer. They're going to tell you why they pulled you over. So attitude definitely plays a role in this whole thing, how you act. But what if what if you're nervous? What if you're nervous around uh, a police officer? You, naturally, you're going to have a higher uh, blood pressure when you get pulled over, right? I, listen, uh, it's it, understandable when somebody is nervous. Uh, they may not act the same way that they would normally act. But try to, you know, the best advice I can give someone is try to remain calm, answer questions, don't volunteer anything. The second the cop, the cop comes over to the car, don't sit there and say, hey, I wasn't doing anything. <laughs> they don't want to hear that. But, you know, that's, gonna... that, that sounds very New York of you, though. Well, but I'm a lawyer, <laughs> so I, I, I listen to my own legal advice. <laughs> don't, don't. Don't antagonize the police officer. They will come over to you and they will tell you what they think you did wrong. 
Um, that's the usual way it goes. And, the, and the good, they may ask you some questions. If you can, answer the questions briefly and politely. If you antagonize the officer, it's not going to help. You, I'm sure, um, have seen what happens in some racially sensitive situations. Is there any way uh, for those situations to be better handled? Well, listen, uh, that's a very touchy and very sensitive area. And the best thing that I can say is keep your hands where they can be seen. Don't do anything that's threatening at all to the police officer. And whatever they do, even if they arrest you, don't sit there, get angry, don't resist. You're not, it's not going to help you, and it can result in some bad things happening when you resist. They arrest you, they arrest you. Go along with it, keep your mouth shut, and the second they let you make a phone call, you get a lawyer. Because police are not the end, right? It's really best then to just submit to whatever they say to do, just do it, and then deal with everything afterward, maybe in court. That's correct. It's correct. When you, even, if, even if a police officer is, for what you believe to be racially motivated reasons, arresting you, uh, when all that went on is you had a broken tail light, go along with it. You, you, you're not going to change their mind out in the street, and you could cause yourself some real harm because some police officers don't respond as well to somebody who doesn't understand why they're being arrested, and it can get a little aggressive. It can get a lot aggressive sometimes. Yeah. We've seen too many, uh, too many circumstances where people are getting pulled over for small, innocuous things. The cops rough. The uh, the driver of the vehicle is non-cooperative, and before you know it, shots ring out. Yeah, and with usually tragic results. My guess. Often. Yeah, my guest is David Parisman, founder and lead attorney at the New York City's Parisman Law Firm. Their contact information is in the description of this show. Is it worth it to go to court if you have a broken taillight ticket or you get a speeding ticket? Is it still worth it to go to court and at least go in front of the judge rather than just paying the citation, pleading guilty, if you will, by your signature and sending the fine into the court? Even if you think you may have been at fault and done what they said you did, um, if you don't want to risk the points and you can't, and particularly you can't afford to risk the points, a lawyer can very often uh, negotiate and get a much better uh, deal, if you would, uh, than you will get. Um, it depends where you are and how you handle it. In New York, when you get a moving violation, there is no deals. You cannot talk to a prosecutor, um, and, and with, uh, nor can a lawyer talk to a prosecutor and work out a better deal from you. Like if you were uh, charged with going 85 in a, in a 55, 
they can frequently knock it down to a 60 in a 55, which is a much uh, lesser offense. In New York, you either plead guilty or not guilty. And if you're not guilty, if you plead not guilty, you go to trial, period, the end. That's how it works in New York. But other places um, outside of, of the city of New York, the suburbs, for example, and other states, I am sure that if you hire yourself a lawyer, and there are a lot of lawyers who do nothing but handle these kind of uh, traffic-related charges, um, they're often, you know, well-known in the courts. They have relationships, and they can uh, work out deals for you. But what about the cost of a lawyer versus just the cost of a fine? If the fine is eighty-five dollars, a hundred and twenty-five dollars it's going to be more cost prohibitive to hire a lawyer, which is going to be much more expensive than just paying yes, a fine, right? Absolutely. If all it is, if all it is, is a small fine, it's going to cost less than hiring a lawyer. That's no problem. But what I was referring to is the question of points. Getting points on your license is not a good thing. Um, and it depends. Listen, if you've never gotten points and you're otherwise a very safe driver and you're not worried about getting more, Listen, it might affect your insurance rates to get a ticket with points. It might not. Depends on the insurance company. Uh, but if it's cost prohibitive, I mean, if, if all it is is, is an $85 fine, no points, pay the fine. Because, as you said, the points will then lead to maybe higher insurance rates. So you're going to be paying an extra 150 or $200 a month for your higher insurance rates when a lawyer could help knock that out of the way because you'll get no points in in that uh, in maybe pleading down your case. Correct. And and, you know, something the smart thing to do is to at least talk to a lawyer and ask them about it, because they're going to be able to tell you if there are points associated with the violation and what the practice is within the state, depending on where you live with insurance companies and how it might affect you financially. They might tell you, listen, you'll get two points. It's uh, it's not that bad. And your insurance rates will go up twenty dollars a month. And then you can sit there and you can ask yourself, well, is it worth it? What do you charge? You know, sometimes you can hire a lawyer who handles these things for a couple hundred dollars. Right. Right. We'll shift gears here for uh, for this next set of topics. I'm speaking with David Parisman, founder and lead trial attorney at New York City's Parisman Law Firm. How do you stop? you think, or maybe uh, what's the best way that society can help curb or slow down or just stop people driving under the influence? Is it higher fines? Is it greater penalties? I've always thought that maybe if you have a fine that's $50,000 and you have to spend a mandatory three or six months in jail, you're going to get fewer uh, people drinking and driving. The higher the penalty, the less you're going to get. Well, you know, there's a big debate in the in the communities around the country about what the effect is of stiffer penalties on all sorts of things, um, not just motor vehicle and uh, driving while drunk. Um, clearly, in the days when people were able to get away with multiple DUIs without any real um, consequences, that might have an effect on, uh, I could see how that would have an effect if the, if the laws are that loose. 
but they're not that loose these days, many places, most places, um, because of the prevalence of uh, driving while drunk and, and all the accidents that have happened and the fatalities and serious injuries that happen as a result of them. Um, so does, does making the penalties worse always help? Not necessarily. It's not something that you can say yes or no to. But if they're unusually lax, that I think I could fairly state that may contribute to uh, the problem because people are aware of it. They know they can get away with it. Um, on the other hand, I think the, the better solution is through education, testing. Um, people need to be made aware of the fact that when you drive while you're intoxicated, you might kill yourself, you might kill some of your passengers, and you might kill strangers. And the consequences can be devastating. There, there is such a thing as vehicular manslaughter, and you can go to jail for a long time, particularly if you're driving intoxicated. So I think education is the key to it. We need to teach our children when they start becoming teenagers um, about driving, driving while drunk. Uh, and nowadays, there's Uber, there's Lyft, there's other rideshare services. Um, there's, of course, the smart move, which is if you're going out with a couple of friends, Somebody's the, de the designated driver and doesn't drink that night. But you got to be sensible. But, you know, young kids go out, they go out, they party, and they want to hop back in their cars afterwards. And they need to be made aware of, of what, can, what can happen um, in those situations. You can ruin someone else's life and you can ruin your own life. And David, you, you mentioned the vehicular manslaughter when it comes to DUI, but couldn't you argue that somebody who is drinking and, and it, you said education is key. I'd be surprised if anybody around the country doesn't know that drinking and driving is both illegal and obviously very dangerous. So maybe the vehicular homo or, uh, manslaughter charge is almost outdated at this point because when you're drinking, you make a conscious decision to get behind the wheel in what you could argue is a deadly uh, instrument. It, it What's the difference between driving a car, a 4,000-pound car at 60 miles an hour, or holding an axe or holding a gun, and uh, killing somebody? So could you see it well, maybe, maybe going murder instead of just manslaughter because the, the, the penalties are so much less with manslaughter even though you're still killing somebody? The way the the way the courts define murder and manslaughter um, make it difficult in most states to bring a murder charge as a result of driving while intoxicated. Um, there's there's a difference between taking an axe and trying to chop somebody's head off. And uh, being stupid enough to get behind the wheel of a car while you're intoxicated. That's just how the courts define it. And frankly, I think there is a difference. 
You're not at least one thing. You may be doing something really reckless and really dangerous. And for that, you should be punished. But it's not the same as intentionally trying to cause somebody uh, to be murdered. Then should there be different maybe levels of DUI enforcement? There's the casual one or two uh, glasses of wine drinker that might have a DUI or a uh, blood alcohol content of point, you know, zero three or point zero four, where they're right on the edge of being impaired. Don't you think there's a difference between that level or the person that is highly intoxicated at point two six or point three? Yes. Or you know, I yes. mean, maybe there should be uh, uh, different levels of enforcement for the different levels of intoxication. There is. The, penal- the penalties do vary depending on the level of intoxication and depending on what happens. Is there a, a, were you caught intoxicated? Was there an accident? Was there an accident with a serious injury? Was there an accident with death? All those things amp up the level of the charges. Um, and, and then, of course, the level of your intoxication is, is also important. And it will affect a prosecutor and the charges that they can and will bring. What is your feeling about uh, checkpoints, those random along the roadway checkpoints where officers set up shop, make everybody pull over, they contact them and then either let them go or or might ask somebody for more information about uh, whether they've been drinking or not. Can can do you have to answer that question if you've been drinking or not? I think they may help keep uh, drunk drivers off the road if people are afraid of them. Do I necessarily think they're constitutional? Uh, That's a big maybe and uh, more a question for a constitutional lawyer and a criminal lawyer than a guy like myself. But um, if you went through a a checkpoint and you had or even had not been drinking, and the officer says, have you had anything to drink? Would What, what would you answer? I, I tell the truth. It's the only thing. No, it's very difficult for a lawyer to advise a client to lie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if I follow my own personal advice, that would be the same thing. Right, right. But I've seen maybe you've seen those videos, or maybe you haven't seen those videos of people, the drivers, who then just pull up to one of these checkpoints and they open up their window just a sliver so they can talk to the officer, and they they basically refuse to show ID. They basically refuse to answer any questions, yeah, and they repeatedly yeah, say, yeah. "Am I being detained? Am I being detained?" <laughs> and until the officer because, says, gets frustrated, just lets them go. Because there are constitutional questions about whether they're able to pull you over without probable cause. You're not supposed to pull people over without probable cause. It's like, it reminds me of the time once I got pulled over uh, by a police officer and he comes over to me and he says, you know, your your registration ticket, your your inspection ticket is out of date. Now, it turns out it was a mistake because the car was relatively new. and, and I, I, I looked at the police officer and I said, and I, I, should, I probably shouldn't have said this, but I did. And I said to him, you came from behind me, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, 
Mexico. How did you know that that sticker was out of date? I said, so can you tell me why'd you pull me over to begin with? <laughs> right. And, 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 and he said, um, I don't remember. I can't remember what he said. He made something up and it was obviously I caught obvious. I caught him sort of flat footed. Um, and I said, listen, I can make a phone call right here with you sitting here. I'll get my dealership right on the phone and you will find out that, uh, this car is uh, three months old and whatever sticker should be on there should be a valid sticker. Uh, and he, and he just looked at me and, you know, I, I happened to have some of those PBA cards and I handed them to him and he went, all right. And that was the end of it. But yeah, sometimes they pull you over. They got no probable cause. And that's the problem with these checkpoints. There is no probable cause, but states permit them because if they didn't permit them, they wouldn't be doing it. Right. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's frustrating. I came across one in my life. I had not been drinking. The officer says, have you had anything to drink? I had my whole family in the car. No, sir. And then they just let us go. Obviously I'm with my kids. <laughs> I guess not obviously, I guess there are idiots that will drink and drive with their wife and kids in the car. Um, but you know, at least for me, it was, it was no issue. Yeah. Well, you know, if you're at a checkpoint and, and it's not an issue, then that's the easiest thing to do. The problem is what to tell somebody to do if they do have a problem, if that officer checks them out. That's that's a more difficult question, and I am sure you'll get different answers from different lawyers. Some are going to tell you to do exactly what you just described. Take your ID, put it up at the window, let them see your ID, open the window a quarter of an inch, a half an inch, and uh, don't answer questions. Some people will say that, and they may be right. It, it's also because you're out in Denver and I'm here in New York, the laws are going to be different from state to state. It's all going to depend on, and, and, and the law will change because over the years, what has been determined to be probable cause in certain circumstances is different one year to the next. My guest is David Parisman, founder and lead trial attorney at New York City's Parisman Law Firm. You can always get their information from the description of this program. Uh, let's switch to what you really are an expert in, uh, injury crashes. So after a crash happens, whether I am the one at fault or the one who was hit, do I need to call a lawyer every time? Well, the first question, you know, do you need to call a lawyer every time? No, you don't need to call a lawyer every time. Um, it, 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 if you're in a circumstance where um, you, you're satisfied a few days, a week, two weeks after an accident, that you have no injuries whatsoever, you don't necessarily have to call a lawyer. It won't hurt to call a lawyer. Because personal injury lawyers work on contingency generally, which means they um, get a percentage of what they recover for you. And you can always consult with a lawyer. They'll take your call and they'll talk to you and they'll guide you and they're not going to charge you for it. If any lawyer in a personal injury type case, when you're talking to them about a car crash uh, and, and possibly bringing a claim, tells you there's a consultation fee, call another lawyer. 
because um, there shouldn't be. Um, that's not that's not how it's done. That's all encompassed in whether they take your case uh, or not. When they take your case, they get a fee. They get a piece of uh, of what you get. Uh, in, in New York, it's a third. Um, in other places, it can be there that much or more. Um, but if if you're satisfied that nothing is wrong with you and it's been a few weeks, you don't necessarily have to call a lawyer, but it won't hurt to call a lawyer and ask some questions. Um, if it's not a, if you're not thinking about being injured and you're worried that you were at fault in the accident and that you may get sued, you don't necessarily have to call a lawyer, but you got to call your broker or your insurance company up and ask them what they think you should do. Um, if, if it's a, a, a serious enough kind of accident, the circumstances might be such that you need to call a lawyer. Um, like not only if you, not, you weren't just speeding, but you were intoxicated, then you may have to defend yourself and you should get the advice of a good criminal lawyer. Um, other than that, in your basic run-of-the-mill accident, if you're afraid that you're going to get sued, first thing foremost is call your insurance company or your broker and make sure after you make that phone call that you get an email, that you get a letter, that you get something that documents that you reported the accident. That's the most important thing to do. Notify your insurance company. I mean, obviously, at the scene of the accident, there's many things that you can do. You know, one of the most important things is find witnesses, if there are any, who can help bear out your story. Um, take photographs of the scene. Take photographs of your car. Take photographs of anything of, of the other car, uh, assuming there's another car. Take photographs of anything and don't spare the film because there is no film anymore in cameras. <laughs> They're digital. Right. Just click away. Take them close. Take them far. Take them from this angle, take them from that angle, and have pictures. So if you get witnesses and you have pictures and you get the name and address and the insurance information of the other driver, you've fulfilled your basic needs. And, of course, if you need medical attention, get medical attention. Don't be, don't be a wise guy and, 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 and uh, skirt it. Your comments about pictures and video triggered a memory that I have. A couple weeks ago, I was covering a rollover crash on television, and our helicopter flew over the scene, and we showed video for about 10 minutes or weeks. And I, I took screenshots of from the helicopter and some video, and I sent it out on my Twitter feed. And I was contacted later in the day by the sister of the person who was driving that car that was hit and flipped over, and she told me that her sister was involved in this uh, crash, and that the driver that hit her was didn't have any insurance, and she didn't know what to... Well, she first she wanted to know if I, she could have the video, and I said, sure, here's, here's some of the video. And then she said she didn't know what to do next, and I said, well... It's probably best right now if you if you just talk. There's plenty of the lawyers that that advertise on television. Pick one and and talk to them. And then a couple days later, I received a, a letter from one of these lawyers who asked for the uh, the whole video that uh, you know some of the video that I showed uh, I shared with her. I said, well, technically, 
I don't own it. The television station owns it. Um, and so uh, I had to talk to my general manager and he said, hey, if, if we get a summons, uh, uh, you know, to, that that requires that video, go we'll, we'll go ahead and share it with you. So I haven't heard back from them since, but that, that reminded me of when you say take pictures, video off. You know, I, I have 10 minutes of video for that for that person uh, involved in that incident right there. Well, you know, since the advent of video, and particularly after 9-11, when video was on buildings, at least in the city of New York, all over the place, it's amazing how that has changed the landscape because I have myself experienced numerous times uh, accident cases uh, that have come to me, uh, pedestrians involved in accidents with buses, uh, other kinds of vehicular accidents where we are able to get a hold of video. And the video often is devastatingly helpful. We, we had a particular case where a young uh, person w- was run over by a bus and the bus driver testified what accident, basically. I don't know. They were running across the street in the middle of the street. I stopped my bus and they just stood there. And then uh, people in the crowd were saying, lay down. And they laid down and pretended they had an accident with my bus. Now, first of all, this person had grievous injuries. So it obviously was belied. But we had videotape of it. And I can tell you, I argued an appeal in this case. And the court was particularly annoyed at the lie that uh, this uh, bus driver told uh, in the face of videotape that showed that they had just turned the corner and mowed him over. Wow. And without that videotape, it would have been her word against her word. Right. And that, that would have been it. And I mean, we would have been able to say, well, look at the injuries. You don't get that kind of an injury if you weren't struck by a bus weren't struck by the vehicle um and that would have been a very good argument but you know well what's the old chinese proverb picture is worth a thousand words sure well video is worth two thousand there you go uh do, do you think we just mentioned those uh, i just mentioned the those uh, all the advertisements that you see for all the uh injury lawyers the one there's there's one particular one I keep thinking about. Do you think these ads promoting that that I'm going to get you hundreds of thousands of dollars is is hurting uh, the a public perception of of the good that you can do and help people? Yeah. yeah, I think it does. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, the reason for the advertising, obviously, the lawyers advertise because they want cases. Then then they're not lawyers for free. And they want as many good cases as they can get. So they advertise because advertising is permitted. And I can't say that I don't advertise. I do. Do I do any of those particular type of ads? No. Um, But we're more of a boutique type firm with a reputation that's a little different. But um, the advertising works. Lawyers get cases. And the only thing that I can tell uh, your listeners is... That's not the way you pick a lawyer because they got the the most billboards out. Um, And one of the things that you can do is, thank God nowadays we have browser search engines, Google being one of them. Go on there and look. 
Don't just look blindly, but look. And when you look, one of the things that you should look at is there are in all the states, they have um, rating services. Martindale Hubble, AVO, Super Lawyers, America's Best Lawyers. And when you see a particular attorney has received those awards, that's going to be commentary on the skill level of the lawyers. Don't just look at any old um, uh, accolade because some of them are a little bit less um, discerning in who they pick. But particularly what, what I find the best is AVO, um, super lawyers, and best lawyers. If, for example, if you look on my site, you'll see I have an AVO 10 rating. Um, I was, as you mentioned, uh, selected as one of America's, not only as a part of America's best lawyers, but lawyer of the year. And I've been a super lawyer as well for, I don't know, 15, 18 years, something like that. And if you go on a lawyer's website and they've got all three of those, you're, you're, you're probably in a good place. Yeah. So don't just look at what money they, you, you think they can get for you because presumably the money is to help recover from injuries sustained. So the higher the money, presumably the more serious injury happened to that person. So I, I don't think that's ever taken into account. The lawyers just stand on TV. Look, I got this person $250,000, but never say, yeah, but he lost a foot. Yeah, well, the way we lawyers refer to it when we're goofing on somebody is somebody says, hey, I got a million dollars for this case. They say, yeah, it was a $3 million case. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not that hard to do that. Right. Um, and, and even, you know, listen, the things that get advertised sometimes can be helpful. You know, they'll, they'll write down over a billion dollars recovered. Um, but if the, if the law firm is... Uh, three generations old well i would think so after three <laughs> yeah, generations right. that you mounted right. up a billion dollars yeah you know you, you got to look on the web look look on their on their website look at what cases they handled the kind of results they got in what kind of cases um it, do some research and then when you go interview you don't have to just go to a lawyer's office and hire them you can go and say i want to think about it and go meet with another one you can do that i mean listen it's not my favorite thing when a client comes in and at the end says well i'm not sure i want to talk to some other lawyers but i'd rather them be convinced at the end of a meeting that i'm the one for them um but if they're not they're not and i, I don't pressure anybody and i just say go you go look um you find somebody who you like better than me go and do what you need to do it's you know it's a free world right my guest is david parisman founder and lead trial attorney at new york city's parisman law firm uh, i want to switch gears to uh cell phones and we all know how of a much of a distraction they are because i think honestly if you think about it one of the worst inventions that ever happened to a vehicle 
is the cell phone. Sure, they're super helpful in all, all other aspects, but when you're driving, it could be the worst thing that ever happened to the person while they're driving a vehicle because it, it seems like nobody can ever put them down even long enough to stay focused on the road when you see somebody pull up to an intersection even before they get to the stoplight. They're, they're picking up their phone to start scrolling through something. From your perspective, how dangerous is not just texting but I think there's all kinds of issues with a cell phone, whether you're interacting with it in any way. I think actually people think they're texting more. They're really not texting as much as they're interacting with it, scrolling through their Facebook feed or their TikTok feed or whatever. So what, what, from your perspective, how dangerous is using a cell phone while driving? Listen, I, I can only tell you what I do. If I'm driving somewhere, first of all, I have my phone mounted. And I have it mounted in a very particular place. A place where um, uh, I'm, it, even if I'm looking towards it, I'm still looking out and over my windshield. Um, and I put it there for convenience sake. Um, and if I have to press a button to, to respond to a phone call, that's about all I'll do. If I, for example, am driving and I suddenly don't know where I'm going and I have to go on uh, one of those either Google Maps or Waze or something to find my way, pull over. Pull over, put your hazard lights on, interact with your phone, input where you need to go, make sure it's registered and going. It's already, uh, it's picked up the, the scent, if you will, and, <laughs> and going in the right direction and then go. Other than that, there is no reason to interact with your phone while you're driving. If you get a text um, and, and if you're foolish enough to look at it and you think it needs an emergent response, pull over. If you're on a highway, you got to wait. You got to wait till you get to a spot where there's an exit and go off the exit and pull over. Is it inconvenient? Yes. Should you do it? Yes. yes. You'd be surprised how a couple of seconds of interaction with a phone um, can can cause you to miss something or do something wrong on the road. Some states have varying degrees of rules regarding cell phone use, whether you can't pick it up, you can't interact with it at all. There's obviously age limitations in some states. Do you think there should maybe be a nationwide ban or nationwide rule regarding cell phones to make it more uniform across the country? Oh, boy. Now you're getting into another constitutional question <laughs> because, you know, lay people don't really think about it. But when there is talk about federalizing something, the federal government is this what we call it in, in, in this country is there's a separation between federal and state powers. Um, for example, most, uh, not most, all, all states have their own criminal code of conduct. And those criminal laws are the laws that are usually prosecuted uh, uh, when people commit crimes. Some crimes are considered federal, for example, kidnapping. Um, uh, but but for other things to be legislated, 
there has to be a constitutional basis that allows the federal government to legislate it. What they often refer to is the ICC, the Interstate Commerce Clause, and that has allowed for a lot of legislation to be passed um, that has on the federal level that, that goes through to the states. Do I think it would be helpful? Um, yeah, I think a uniform standard would be helpful. Um, this way, when people go from state to state, they understand what the rules are. They don't vary from state to state. I want to switch gears another another time for uh, just the remaining few moments that we have here. I, I, I've had many friendly arguments over the years about pedestrians in the road in places they shouldn't be. Here, here's one example I've used many times. There was I was covering this story where a man was coming out of a gentleman's club. It was actually very early one morning, about 4 a.m. He was across from a golf course where he was parked, and he wanted to get to his car. So instead of walking about 50 yards to the signalized crosswalk, he ran across the road, crossed outside of any crosswalk. It actually was hit by a driver in a pickup truck. Now, the, the walking man, he was pretty large. Uh, and it matters because the impact crushed the front of this this guy's truck. And obviously the man was hurt, amazingly not too seriously, but the man in the pickup had a wrecked truck, was faced with the prospect of of not getting his truck repaired. He was a worker uh, where it, I mean, it was his work truck with all his tools. So he was going to have to get his truck replaced. He was losing work for that day and probably many days, if not weeks after that, obviously shaken up after running into a man walking across the street. And my, my, my anti-car friends argue that there isn't any situation, including that one, where a pedestrian is ever at fault. It's it's the fault of the driver, and it's the fault of the infrastructure of the way the roads are designed. That the roads are too wide, or or the speed limit is too high, or or there there shouldn't be cars on the road in the first place. So in in your eyes, what what is the liability of pedestrians? Well, you're asking two different questions, but you don't realize it. You're asking about what is the liability of the pedestrian. That that means can the pedestrian be sued? causing, for example, the damage to that driver's truck? And the answer to that question is, yes, they could be sued. Whether they're going to have insurance coverage that's going to cover for that loss, that's a whole other story. That's going to depend on what kind of insurance they carry. If they have a, uh, a, uh, an umbrella policy uh, that goes along with a, a renter's or homeowner's insurance policy, that may cover them, and that truck driver might have a place to collect from. And they, if the person uh, was walking against the signal and caused the accident, um, there'd be a cause of action for that. I could see them getting the pedestrian getting sued for that. Does it happen very often? I doubt it because most people don't have insurance, and usually the, the vehicle's not that badly damaged. It's the pedestrian that's damaged. As far as are pedestrians always right? There's a presumption um, for pedestrians, but you cannot go so far as to say the pedestrian is always right. Obviously, when a vehicle perceives a pedestrian, the pedestrian has the right of way. Even if they're going against the light, if, if the driver of the vehicle sees them and has the opportunity to avoid them or stop, that's their, uh, that's their job. 
that's their obligation because you're in a car and they're in their clothes on the street. They're naked, if you will. They certainly don't have 4,000 pounds of armor around them. Um, are they always, are pedestrians always right? By no means. Is there more of a presumption in their favor? Yes. Uh, and I guess you could extend this to bicyclists as well, because I hear a lot of people complain about how bicyclists in the road, if they get outside the bike lane, then, or, or they ride in between cars. I'm sure you've seen in New York City all the time, the couriers who are riding, uh, you know, splitting the lanes and, and riding however they want. And, and maybe they get hurt or run into a car or a car runs into them. Um, and, and then you have an injury case in, in, you know, in those situations. They're risking their lives. You know, when you, Bicycles and, pedestri uh, bicycles and pedestrians and vehicles need to have respect for each other. Um, I see bicyclists that ride on one of the roads I regularly ride on in, in my neighborhood. Um, and sometimes they go too tandem and they go out into the road a little bit. Um, and I, I don't think that's smart of them. They're risking their, their own life and limb. Uh, but when I see it, I slow down. I stay behind them until I get to a point when there's no vehicle approaching me in the other direction and I can safely go around them and move enough around them that I'm not too close to them because I don't want to scare them, freak them out and um, get out of their way. I try to have respect for them, but likewise, riders of bicycles should have respect for uh, motor vehicles. Right, but in that in that instance, they're they're riding that wide because they feel like they deserve to have the roadway, and that you don't. Well, I agree with, but I, I I'm not one of those people who's going to get uh, annoyed about that, and 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 drive past them really close by because they're being stupid about what they're doing. I, I'm, I'm not a road rage guy. Right. You know, it, it's not the time. It's not the time of the place to vent your feelings about bicycle riders, because I'm sure there are a lot of people who get annoyed. Uh, bicycle riders hogging the road, doing silly things, doing stupid things, doing dangerous things. Just do everything you can to avoid getting in an accident or hurting anybody. It's not the time to vent. I mean, it, it's the same thing. You know, sometimes I, I ride on that same road and it's a 40 mile an hour speed limit and I drive at 40 miles an hour because that's what the speed limit is. And um, people get behind you and they start to, you know, climb up your rear end uh, of your vehicle I'm talking about. <laughs> right. Uh, because they want you to move. Right. And what I, now some people get angry at that and I don't like it, but you know what I do? I pull over, pull over and let them pass you. Right. They're in a rush. Let them be in a rush. Pull over, let them pass you. Get Pull over safely and get back on the road safely and then continue on your way and avoid that uh, confrontation. It's not necessary. It's not going to do anything else but add anxiety to your life. And you could almost extend this to those scooters that are now in most metro areas where you have a lot of people riding these things on sidewalks, 
So they're in conflict with pedestrians. You have some people riding them in the bike lanes or in the streets. So you're in conflict with vehicles. Uh, I'm sure you've seen recently probably some legal issues with uh, people on scooters getting into uh, injury crashes. The problem with some of the scooters, at least as I observe it, not in the city itself, um, although it, I'm sure it also exists in the city, but here in the suburbs, is that um, there's, they're kids. Yeah. They're young kids. And you know the brain does not mature as fast as the body does. So they get to 15, 16, and their mom or dad get them a scooter, and three or four of these kids, they all get together, and they're going for a ride, and one wants to be faster than the other, and they're not being particularly observant to the rules of the road. They're dangerous. They're, they're scary. I'm not a fan of those vehicles, and I'm not a fan of motorcycles either because of that. And I'm sure that some of your um, listeners are motorcycle riders and, hey, what's wrong with motorcycles? And it's, it's not that there's anything wrong with a motorcycle. They must be a lot of fun. But me, personally, I don't want to be doing 60 miles an hour and have nothing between me and the ground. I completely agree. <laughs> when you go down... Whether it's your fault or not, the chances of getting seriously injured are significant. Yeah. So, listen, that's, but that's, that's, that's a personal of opinion from a guy uh, who uh, wouldn't jump out of an airplane with a parachute. I'm not going to hang glide. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm, I'm not a risk taker in that yeah. regard. You know, it, you I take risks in a courtroom, but. And I, I, I don't take risks with my life, health, and safety. I'm right with you on that one. It, you triggered my uh, thinking when I when we were talking about the pedestrians and vehicles, and you said uh, how the vehicle does this and the vehicle does that. We aren't fully autonomous yet, but I've, I've talked to a, a lot of people who, who are in the autonomous business, and, and they're all in agreement that uh, I think the next big uh, area of law is going to be figuring out who's at fault in autonomous vehicle incidents, crashes, deaths, injuries, is it going to be the vehicle maker? Is it going to be the software maker? Is it going to be the designer of the roadways, the streets? How are they designed? Is it going to be the signals? It's going to be the computer systems. It's, I mean, who is going to be at fault when you have some thing driving and not some body driving? Well, I think the answer to that question is, Everyone and everything that's involved will be brought into the litigation proceedings when they when they do occur. Um, and case by case, it'll get figured out. That's the way it gets done uh, in the United States. We're a body of laws and the laws often derive from individual cases. Sometimes um, legislatures, uh, municipalities can pass laws that that particularly indicate who's responsible but absent that occurring it's the cases and you're going to have one case that's going to have so many and so many people involved and the, and a certain set of facts and factors that were involved in the accident and a and b may be resp held responsible but c and d may not um 
and and then the next case, A and B will be not responsible, and C and D will be. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be fascinating to follow that how it's going to oh, go along. It absolutely, is going to be. You know, it's listen. Um, autonomous vehicles are a great thing, and when everybody is driving around and they're all autonomous, um, maybe. Um, that may be a safe situation, but even if you're autonomously driving, the driver has to pay attention. Right. They still got to pay attention because um, you never know. You never know. It's it's still, it's a machine. It's a computer, but it's a machine. Um, and there's no substitute for uh, human senses. Yeah, and, and I was I was talking. This reminds me from a couple of years ago. I was talking to somebody who works on autonomous cars and the software, and we were talking about a scenario where there's an icy road, a bus is coming at us, uh, and it's it's driven by a, a human, and then I'm in an autonomous car, uh, but the computer can feel the car starting to slide, so. What does the computer do? Does it do evasive maneuvers where it knows that if it turns this way, it's going to hit the bus and then people on the bus are going to be injured? Or if it turns that way, it's going to kill me uh, in in the autonomous car. What? Who's it going to save if if it has a choice? You know, that's I, I think that all those are, are so fascinating questions that uh, I, I guess it's probably not going to be answered for another 20 or 30 or 40 years. You're absolutely right. And. To be honest with you, I can't tell you that I'm familiar enough with the programming of autonomous vehicles to tell you whether uh, the vehicles are capable of handling those kinds of decisions. Um, I hope they are, but um, do I know they are? No, that's why um, I still listen. I was going to say I still like the benefit of human senses. And I will always like the benefit of human senses. There might be certain situations where human senses are um, less adequate than what the computer can do. Um, And that's why it's great that we have these um, uh, devices and vehicles in their windshields um, that detect if you're getting too close to a vehicle in front of you or uh, an object in front of you. And it automatically breaks. It's really very nice. I like the fact that, uh, for example, cars have either uh, audible or visual visual signals that show you if a vehicle is approaching you from the rear uh, on your side. And it lets you know that there's a- another vehicle there. And it works really well because if, if you're paying attention when you're driving and all of a sudden I see that little red light going on on the side of, uh, of my car, on the left side mirror, I know a car is coming up on yeah. me. And if I was planning on changing lanes, well, observe a little more first. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, well, David, thank you so much for your insight and your expertise. Uh, if somebody has a case that they think you might be interested in helping them with, uh, can they contact you at your New York City office? They certainly can. It's 212-977-7033. We also have a vanity number that it, it, it works for anybody, but it, it was particularly created for the benefit of the workers I represent. And that's a uh, local area code 718 workers.
718 workers. Okay, yeah, easy to remember, right. You can always find me on the internet. Everybody's on the internet. I <laughs> And I'll put all of that information again in a link in the description of the show so people can easily just click that link from there and get right to you and I to your law firm. That. Yeah, so David uh, Parisman, founder and lead trial attorney at New York City's Parisman Law Firm. Uh, I appreciate all your inside expertise so much. Well, thank you for the uh, opportunity to appear. You've made me brush up now on my criminal and constitutional law. Sometimes lawyers like that. They like to uh, remember what it was like for to study all kinds of different law, not just one aspect. Well, yeah, that's how it was in law school, and that's <laughs> right. that's why it was a good thing that I was listening in school. There you go. There you go. <laughs> all right. Well, David, thanks again. I appreciate the uh, the time very much. Thank you, and be well. You too. Take care. All right. There he goes. Uh, it was <laughs> it was pretty interesting. It was a good. I think that was a good conversation. There were there were some other. Uh, things I wanted to ask David that that he said he wasn't comfortable with uh, because he's more of a um, injury lawyer than he is a uh, criminal lawyer. And because so, I wanted to ask um, when I was uh, booking him uh, to come on on the show here uh, about what do you do if you get pulled over for a suspected DUI? Do you take a breathalyzer? Do you not take the breathalyzer? Uh, do you take the blood test? Do you not? What What do you do in those situations? I, I've heard that you don't take a breathalyzer. You just stay quiet. And if they suspect you, you never take the roadside test. You don't take a breathalyzer. And you just go. And if they make you take a blood test, I guess you have to because I think it's a court order or something like that where you have to take the blood test. Um but I wanted to ask him about those things and then how they fight it in court. Um, and also the photo radar stuff, where if you get a photo radar ticket in the mail, it's not the same as receiving a citation from an officer because technically that ticket is a, is a summons to court because you're facing your accuser. Well, if you get uh, a ticket in the mail from a photo radar van, um, then you are not really at that point, being served by your accuser. Uh, so you uh, you don't have to pay it. That's what I've heard. And I wanted to ask him those questions too. But Oh, yeah, and a dash cam. I'm sure he would be in favor of dash cams because he said about video. So I'm sure the video from a dash cam, he would love having everybody have dash cams. Anyway, I thought it was uh, interesting and a good conversation. Again, all of uh, his contact information, all the uh, uh, links and phone numbers that David gave me, uh, is there in the description of this show, and you can uh, click it right there and uh, get to him at his New York City office. Well, thanks again to David, and thanks again to you for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring. <laughs>